0: Good morning. Please pray for me as we come to God's Word. Father in heaven, how wonderful it is to stand and to, to sit with these brothers and sisters, to hear their voices lifted towards heaven. We come to you as your children, singing your praises together, singing of your love. And as we do that, Lord, we. Remember your love that we so easily forget. We come to you, Lord, as not just as your children, but as your sheep. And we know that it is so easy for us to go astray, to go our own way. So we come today to your word for guidance and for nourishment. We know that we cannot thrive on bread alone. But we ask that you would give us, Lord, a singleness of heart as we come to your scriptures that we would see Christ and his glory, that you would speak to us from heaven through your word. Give us ears to hear, Lord, and minds to understand and hearts to believe and to love you in greater ways and wills to respond to what you say to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I wonder if you've ever been lonely. I think, actually, if you speak to anyone, they've experienced that, that feeling or that perception of loneliness. In fact, in many ways, I think God has written into our hearts a loneliness. I remember the first time I, <clears throat> I went to college, and uh, I went to the University of Liverpool, and this was only about three hours from our home. Now, in England, three hours is like the ends of the world. <laughs> So, my mother and father dropped me, and I went into our, my dorm room. And to that time, I had never felt that alone. I didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, the people I loved, who loved me, had just driven off in the car. They were three hours away. And for me, I was hugely alone. The second time that I really experienced loneliness was a different. It was it was different from a physical loneliness. I was uh, in Colorado doing my uh, my clinical residency, and I was surrounded by lots of people who I would say loved me. They were my friends. Uh, I had a girlfriend. I had several girlfriends at that time, and I don't say that proudly, but uh, that was the life I was living. And I play, I was playing rugby for the uh, the local club uh, in Fort Collins, and we went up to. Uh, Aspen to play rugby against that t- team. And uh, that wasn't so far in distance, but that was uh, far in elevation. And I was exhausted uh, playing at that sort of height. And I can remember that day. Uh, I could attribute it to hypoxia and low oxygen levels, but after that game, I felt the most alone that I'd ever felt in my life. And what's been described as the God shaped heart, a hole, opened up in my heart. I wasn't lonely for my friends, I was lonely for something else. And that was the night that I would say I came to faith, that I came to pray and, and respond to that loneliness that was written into my heart, because I reached out to the, the remedy for that loneliness. And Psalm 139, I've, I've called today, actually, uh, the unfathomable remedy for loneliness, and it's been described as one of the most beautiful uh, of all scriptures and so i want to read it again i know we read it as our call to worship but let me read it again to you and uh, as you think about it through that context of loneliness and of cosmic loneliness So psalm 139 oh lord you've searched me and known me you know when i sit down and when i rise up you discern my thoughts from afar I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there's any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So I suggest to you that in this psalm, David gives us the unfathomable remedy for loneliness. Now, I say unfathomable, not because I can say that word, but because... It's stunning to even him. In several verses, David is amazed at the very thoughts of, what he is, of that he is speaking. He says in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. And later on, he says, um, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. So even David, who writes this psalm, cannot grasp what he's saying, because, of course, it's the words of God written by his Spirit. Rashawn and I actually chose this psalm for a reading at our wedding, and at that time I didn't quite know what the psalm meant, but something resonated within it, that it was a love poem, that there was an element of God's love, and we've sung many hymns today about Christ's love for us. And as I got to know Rashawn, she was loving me in a way that I'd never been loved before. And at the heart of that was how she knew me and how she searched me out and how she pursued me, the questions that she asked me. I'd never been loved because I'd never quite been known like Rashawn was knowing me. And her commitment to me was going to be a promise of companionship that I'd never experienced. In some way, I saw the answer to my aloneness and my loneliness in Rashon. And guess what? In Scripture, it says that it's not good for man to be alone. That's before the fall. That was in Eden. That Written into us is this, this call to not be lonely. And in this psalm, it says that the cure for loneliness is him knowing you is being known, not just superficially, not just around you the things in your life, but being known, and also his everlasting presence, and also his active help. Because of who he is, because of his goodness, we can be open and transparent. So i suggested on the back of your bulletin that the, the unfathomable remedy for loneliness is the Lord's omniscient love, the Lord's omnipresent love, the Lord's omnipotent love, and our responsive love. So the first element of this realm of dita loneliness is actually God's omniscience. And that's an amazing doctrine, that God knows everything. And we've all heard about that. If you've been to Sunday school, if you've read Scripture, you understand that Lord, the Lord knows everything. There's nothing that he finds out. There's nothing that he discovers. He knows all things. But in this Scripture, the Lord's knowledge isn't just infinite. It's intimate. It's knowing you and knowing me. And verse 1 to 4, it says, The Lord has searched me and knows me completely. Oh, Lord, you've searched me and known me. And look at how he knows us. And the the scriptures here are are comprehensive in how he knows you. Very often when I know people, I I know what's going on in their life, and I I might know what job they do, where they live. But do I know everything about them? The challenge to me as I read this is, am I interested in knowing everything about them? Because if I don't know them, I can't fully love them. Because here he says, you've searched me. And um, this psalm was called the hound of heaven. It's the idea that God is pursuing us in his knowledge. Even though he knows everything, there's an element in which he is constantly searching us. The word is of scrutiny, and it's the search of exploration, as if you would search out uh, an island or a land. But God knows everything, so it's not discovery. He's searching me so that I might know myself. He moves sort of from the the past to the present. He says, David says, you've known me. And at the end of the psalm, he's saying, please know me. So he's kind of moving through. He, He talks about this overflowing river of knowledge. Even though it's not increasing or decreasing, it's not ebbing or rising or falling, God's knowledge of us is complete and perfect and balanced and constant. He doesn't find anything out about us. It's this constant river. And it's, this, it's my character, my personality. He says, you know me, who I am, my tendencies and my strengths, my weaknesses, my hopes and my fears and my desires. He knows who you are. He also says, You know when I sit down and when I rise up. This is about what I do. This is my actions. When I rest and when I'm active, He knows what you're doing. When you're static and when you're moving. When you're sitting at the computer or running along the road, He knows your actions. Amazingly, though, He also knows what you think. He says, You discern my thoughts from afar. He knows your thoughts, which come from the deepest part of you, that reflects your private world. Who else knows your thoughts? Only those thoughts that we share, but he knows all of them. The thoughts about yourself, your thoughts about others, your hopes and your expectations and your dreams, your praises of people, your inner criticisms of people, your prejudices, he sees and knows all of those things. And he says he sees them from afar. This word, there's some element in which it's about distance, but also uh, the word also speaks about: even though my thoughts are far far from your thoughts, you still know them. Because his thoughts are pure and blameless and righteous and holy. And so often my thoughts are not. They're evil. And selfish. So he knows the expanse of your thoughts, even when they're far from his. He says, You know where I go, you search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all of my ways, daytime and nighttime. When you're alone and when you're others, when you're with others, when you're in your day watch, when you're in your night watch. When you're in your workplace, when you're at the nightclub. All of your ways. Some people, commentators have described this, the myth of secrecy. There is no secrecy. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. That's not true. What happens in the dark places of your life stays in the dark places of your life. That's not true. Wherever you go, whatever you're thinking, even your words, before a word is on my tongue, before you have formed that word, he knows that word it says. That represents your intentions. Your anger comes up before you even know it. It surprises you, doesn't it? Sometimes mine does. So your words of anger, your words of encouragement, your words that are going to wound someone, the words that are going to build someone up, your words that are harsh, your words that are gentle, your your words that are cruel, your words that are kind. He says, you know them all together. He knows the combination of them. So it's, he says, I want you to search me. I want you to scrutinize those things. What do we do with this, with God's all-encompassing knowledge? Like a searchlight that he reaches into every aspect of our life, outwardly and inwardly, he knows everything. Well, there would be two responses I think that we could have. One is we could be offended. We could be indignant. We could be resentful. Who are you? to ask me that question, to know that thing about me. We could see it as an invasion or an intrusion or a violation because those thoughts are my thoughts. They're private. We could feel ashamed or degraded because our actions or our thoughts or aspects of our personality could be shameful or regretful or dark in some way. Or... What David thinks is that he is loved and cared for and cherished and treasured and valued. Just when Rashawn asks me a question, it's because of her love for me. How much more? When the Lord knows me, it's because of his love for me. So your response depends on your confidence in the questioner, the one who searches or the one who has the capacity to know. Do you trust their character? Do you trust their intentions do you trust the reasons that they have for asking and knowing those things? So even if the things that were known were unattractive or unlovely or disdainful or shameful or ugly, when we know who God is, we have full character, full confidence in his character and in his intentions and his response. So therefore, God knowing us, we should welcome that. We should appreciate that and David does so so much at the end of the psalm he's going to say search me some more no more of me not because he's perfect but because god is perfect look at david's response he says you hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me and he says your thoughts that's such knowledge god's knowledge of him is too wonderful for me it's high and i cannot attain it he says Your knowledge is complete and thorough and universal, all-inclusive, and that's wonderful. Now, was David's life perfect? Was his character flawless? Were his actions um, sinless? Let me give you two words, Bathsheba and Uriah, adultery and murder. But David said... I want you to know even my adultery, even my murderous heart. And David could give you many more words. And scriptures could give you many more words about David. But David says it's wonderful. He in fact desires that knowledge because he says here, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. It's a picture of protection. You knowing about me is protection for me. It's comforting for me. It's the picture of a fragile being safely cushioned and held and protected in the Lord's hand like a bird. Because when we see a fragile bird, we don't reject that fragile bird. We don't expect that bird to be perfect. We hold it in our hands to protect it because of its fragility and its brokenness. You see, biblical love is to know and to be fully known. And so often, I only know this as men, we avoid being fully known. We love the secret places. We love our independence. We love our isolation. And it's so important in Scripture that God knows you. In Matthew 7, do you remember when those, uh, some people came to Jesus and said, hey, we've done all of these great things for you. And Jesus said, I don't even know you. What chilling words that would be to hear that, that he doesn't even know you. So, are you fully known by him? Are you fully known by Christ? Are you open to being fully known? His knowledge is covenantal, it's transactional, it's initiated by him. And lots of, remember the the picture of sheep? Jesus said, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, they know my voice. It's a wonderful, God's knowledge of us is a protection for us, a thing that we should desire more and more. The second element of this this remedy for loneliness is God's omnipresence. And in the next verses, um, David asks asks these questions, and I think we we all know the answer to these questions. You see, loneliness is actually... separation from people a separation from relationship and we know that he's everywhere scriptures say you know he can't be held within a temple the mountains are his the heavens are his he is everywhere but this again is his presence with you it's personal omnipresence and Davis tells us that he cannot flee he cannot hide he cannot outrun the Lord physically or spiritually the two questions he starts with, they're rhetorical. He says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? And we all, we all know the answer, nowhere. There's nowhere that you can go from his spirit. There's nowhere that you can flee from his presence. It's beautifully written because in this scripture, there's no real evidence that David's trying to escape God. Like Jonah running away from God's will in his life, going the opposite direction. It, sort of, it, doesn't, it doesn't concretely say that he's trying to escape, but yet it's sort of hinted at. He says, even there, almost as though if I went there, if I did want to get away from you, I couldn't even if I wanted to. And we think we can go places where the Lord can't see us, don't we? We often seek solitude, for a secret sin. We often try and avoid people. Now, when I was doing one of my training um, in large animal medicine um, in Colorado, it was a big horse hospital, and I did mainly cows. And they just, beautiful, they just bought this beautiful new scope, an endoscope. And it, it's, now it's not as modern as it was then, but instead of having optic fibers, it had a little video camera on the end. And um, I was on emergency, and I had a cow come in that... Um, had some respiratory disease. I was quite senior in my residency by then, and I had an equine resident friend, and I said, I'd love to pass a scope into this cow's throat. Now, you don't know know the details about horses and cows, but they breathe differently. So when we pass it to horses, we put it down their nose, but that's not how cows breathe, so we had to put it down into their mouth. So I thought this was a good idea, and I passed this scope with this friend of mine um, into this uh, cow's Mouth, and I had a, I had something to stop it crunching, and as I was passing it, I felt this, cr- this strange feeling, which was the crunch of the camera at the end of the endoscope, and I was and I, I said, Mindy, pull this out. Mindy pulls back the scope, and the end of the scope was squashed completely. This is about a two hundred thousand dollar scope or something <laughs> like that. So, um, the the head of the equine clinic was a, a, a surgeon that everyone was slightly scared of, and I was slightly scared of him for the next three or four days. I managed to hide from him. I'd be walking down the corridor, and I'd see him, and I, if it was a cupboard, I would disappear into the cupboard. <laughs> or a bathroom. And he must have thought that there was something wrong with me because I was disappearing. Whenever I saw him, I'd disappear, and I, I was, he probably didn't see me. And one day, I walked, into the, um, I walked into the changing room to get ready for a surgery, and he said, Oh, Brian. And I was like, Oh, no. I can't avoid him. I, I'm in his presence. He said something like, I heard you messed up the scope. I said, Yeah, I can't believe I did that. And he said something like, Brian, other people I would have expected that, but I was disappointed in you. And he left. And I was like, Dr. McRaith had an opinion about me? That's amazing. (laughs) But I spent the whole time trying to avoid confrontation, to avoid his presence, to go into the secret place. He says, If I go to heaven, you're there. Of course God's in heaven, his throne room. But he says, even if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. So the Hebrews, Sheol is the grave, the picture of death. It's a, a foreshadowing of the resurrection, that even in death, God is going to be there to meet us. Death will not separate his people from him. Even death will not separate me from your presence. It's an ultimate assurance for us as believers, isn't it? That death will not separate us from God. It reminds me of that passage in Acts chapter 7 and the stoning of Stephen. When Stephen is being stoned and he looks up into heaven just in the throes of death and he sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What a great assurance that he's going to go into God's presence in an even greater way than to be separate from him. Because our Lord preceded us into the grave. See, death on the cross, He was a substitute for our loneliness. On the cross. He was forsaken. He experienced the fullness of loneliness that we deserved. We are by our sins separated from our holy God, the temple curtain, separated the holy of holies from um, the normal parts of the temple. But in his death, that curtain was torn. The separation that creates our loneliness was broken so that we can now, through his body, go into the presence of Lord. A sinful man, you and me, we're forgiven by grace. He was our substitute for loneliness, to experience the loneliness that we never have to. He went to the grave of Sheol. He was forsaken and separated from his heavenly father when we should have been. But the grave couldn't hold him. On the third day, he rose in a glorious and exalted way and has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father and we will be with him in eternal presence. Even in death, we're not separated from him. And that's what John 17 says. John 17 about his high priestly prayer. I wish that they would be with me. In another part of John, he says, I'm going to go and make a place with them so that we can be together. Just as you and I are one, they can be one with us. It's the eternal answer to our loneliness is oneness with him. He says, if I take the wings of the morning, he's talking about the east. He's using merism, which is, he's using these these contrasts to sort of bring into completeness into the idea. He said, if I go to the east, if I take the wings of the morning... And if I dwell to the uttermost parts of the sea, that's the Mediterranean in the West, he said, wherever I go physically, you are there. I can't geographically get away from you. And he says, surely the darkness shall cover me, the light about me in night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day. The darkness is as light to you. This euphemism of dark and light is about suffering and pain and troubles and trials. And aren't we most lonely when things are going wrong in our life? When do we seek people when we're celebrating and when we're rejoicing? When do we go to be on our own? Is when we are in sin or affliction or trials. And yet, that's when we most need presence of one another. And as Jamie prayed for the church, that's part of God's design for his church, is for us to be God's presence to those who are in affliction. Because it says, the night is as bright as day, darkness is as light for you. It's no difference to God. Whether there's a dark part of your life or a bright part of your life, it's the same to him. He created darkness and in light physically, and he's sovereign over your difficulties. What a great truth, that God is with you through life and through death, through joy, through calamity. It says in Hebrews thirteen five, he will never leave you or forsake you. His eternal presence, his omnipresent love is a remedy for our love. And look, if you wonder about him being there, it says, even there your right hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me, verse 10. It's again, it's a picture not of his presence looking down on judgment, but his, him holding you and him guiding you through those places where you're lost. As if the Lord's promise of his presence is not just physical and emotional, but it's also spiritual, and that's true. And then David extends this amazing idea of the Lord always being with you um, to a new realm. And he he links it to also his power. Because very often in loneliness, we want an answer. We want a solution. We're often alone because we've lost hope that anything could be done about our certain situation. So he talks about God's loving omnipotence. His power. And, And the example he uses is actually a place that no one has been. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. So here he, he goes into, the, he says the third element of remedy for loneliness is actually that you're my creator. I trust you because you created me. Not only did you create me, you were with me in the womb in some way. It's just an assurance that nothing can overcome his love for his beloved. We see that in Romans 8, right? There's nothing that can separate you from God's love. Nothing in creation, nothing spiritually can separate you from God's love. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ, Should tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it's written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Even in the womb, then God was with me. And David praises him for the creation of his body, for his soul, and even for the day-to-day details of his life the framework of his life. He says, you formed my inward parts. The word is his kidneys. But it doesn't mean you just form my kidney. That wouldn't be quite very majestic, that you just form my kidneys. It's a word used to describe everything that's inside me, even to my soul, my heart, my inner being. But also, you you created my body. My frame was not hidden from you. And he, he talks about this weaving and this knitting. It's almost as though the blood vessels and the tendons are being expertly created and and woven together by God's hand in a place that we can't even see. Even with ultrasound, we don't see those processes taking place. It says, you saw my unformed substance, the person I was going to be, my DNA, my, my, my weaknesses again, my strengths. And he bursts into praise about this. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it well. So he's not so much praising him for the details of that work, but for how it was done, for the love and the attention and the care of the Creator. Because he made us to be loved and he made us to love. And it's David's soul that's crying out with this kind of assured and grateful praise towards God. The intricacy of his creation, that he created you means he's never going to leave you lonely. And David even sees that his plans and purposes, your eyes saw my unformed substance and in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, which as yet there were none of them. So David's days were shaped and fashioned and knitted together before they were even in place. Your days His plans and purposes for you were written before you were formed and shaped and fashioned and knitted together. When you were born, where you will die, where you live, what will you do? They're written in a book. Now that's a remedy for loneliness. Even if you feel lonely, he knows why you're here. He's sovereign over your life. And David praises the Lord for these thoughts and for his eternal presence. He says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. You see, with that praise, David responds to the beauty and excellence of all of these truths. He's the Lord's beloved. He's fully known. He's eternally and intimately united to his Heavenly Father, he's fearfully and wonderfully made and his days are written for him in his book. And he he responds in awe and wonder and praise. But then he says something strange, it seems to us. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. This seems like a strange thought in the midst of all of this wonder and praise. Now can you go kill some people? But really, in response to this, David sees the problem. He sees the problem, and he responds not in hatred but in zeal, a zeal for God's righteousness, a zeal for God's glory, and a zeal for his own personal holiness. It's as though the preceding truths have ignited this this previously absent zeal for God's glory and his kingdom in him. He sees the source of the brokenness and the trouble and the sorrow as Evil in the world and those who hate God. He sees their enmity from disdain for the Lord. He sees their hatred for Him and all of His ways, but He also recognized the propensity of His own heart for evil as well. So the Lord's thoughts have become His thoughts in measure. He wants what God wants. He's longing for protection, but He's longing for justice. He's longing that evil gets taken away because that's going to affect his presence, and his love for his Father. He loves what God loves, and he hates what God hates. But look at this great last couple of verses. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. He recognizes that he is part of that problem. He wants God to sieve him even more, to know him even better, to reveal those areas of his life that are not pleasing to God because he wants to walk in holiness. He wants God to lead him in the way everlasting. He wants to know God in Christ and then for other people to look at him, as in John 17, to see his knowledge of God and want to know God like he knows God. So the end of this psalm is of beauty and wonder that show the glories and care and love of our Lord. He returns to the foot of the cross. You see, we see the, the true root of personal loneliness is not without us but within us. It's in our own hearts. Search me, know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts. Show me my grievous ways because they separate me from you. And only you know me fully, he's saying, God. I don't fully know myself. I can only know what you reveal to me about myself. I don't know what I'm doing or where I'm going. I don't know what I'm doing later today. I don't know what I'm doing next week. He does. I don't know how my heart's going to respond to somebody confronting me next week. He does. I don't even know myself, but he knows. I don't, know my, I don't know the strengths and weaknesses that are going to be revealed to me over the next few weeks. He does. So I have to go back to the cross because he knows my heart. And he hems me in and he lays his hand upon me and he leads me and he holds me. And when I awake, I'm with you. Because you see at the foot of the cross, you see our sacrificial savior. In the empty grave, we see our risen savior at his right Hand, we see our shepherd king leading us in the way everlasting. Let's pray. Father, how precious to us are your thoughts. How vast is the sum of them. Lord, if we could count them, they're more than the sand. Such knowledge is too wonderful for us, too high that we cannot attain these. Lord, we know that these are true because they're here in your word. They've been fulfilled by Christ. They've been sealed by the presence of work of your spirit in our hearts. So Lord, help us believe them and help us live by them, that the world might not experience the loneliness that we once experienced. May you draw near to them and draw near to us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.